Hello. Good and bad news for BBC viewers this week. Happy Valley on BBC One got five stars from everybody and the largest TV audience of the year. But if you loved Autumn Watch, you will be deeply disappointed to learn it is no more. Another of the corporation's cuts, which seem to be announced weekly, if not daily. We have a real budget crisis, said the BBC chairman on Tuesday. We have a budget that doesn't add up and we're having to make some very difficult decisions. He was speaking to a House of Commons select committee whose main interest was scrutinising his appointment and his links to the then Prime Minister, the perpetually cash-strapped Boris Johnson, who, together with his wife, has a taste in rather expensive wallpaper. In this podcast, I'm discussing Richard Sharp's appearance before Parliament with an old friend of the podcast, Richard Eyre, former BBC trustee. Richard, just before we start, um, I have to confess something. I found that a rather impressive exercise in democracy. I mean, he is the boss of the BBC, being put on the spot for quite a long time by, on the whole, pretty well-informed politicians asking pretty sharp questions. Now, setting aside the answers he gave, were you similarly impressed? Or do you think I'm getting soft in my old age? Well, it was not atypical of select committee meetings these days. Backbench MPs are becoming more and more confident in their strident questioning of politicians, but also of other people in the public eye. Like most select committee meetings, there's a clear divide between uh, opposition and loyal government supporters. So the, the tough questions were from the chair himself, but also, uh, who is a Tory, of course, but also from the uh, the Labour members present. And the softies came from uh, the, the Tories present on the committee who would rather talk about the BBC's alleged failings in impartiality or in serving local audiences rather than worry about the appointments process by which their former leader put one of his mates into the job of chairman. Well, let's hear from one of those MPs, Kevin Brennan, a Labour member. He asked... What did you tell the Prime Minister that you were going to meet Simon Case about? I told him that Mr Blythe wanted to support him. I told him that I'd advised Mr Blythe, or I told Mr Blythe, and I'd informed him that there are rules in this country, and that therefore, as a result of that, um, I, he should be in touch with the Cabinet Office. And as a result of that, I was going to do so. But you did, in effect, inform the Prime Minister. I definitely informed that the Prime Minister. I informed the Prime Minister who had approached Blythe. you, who wanted to lend him money to support his lifestyle. Well, I, I informed. Yes, I informed the Prime Minister that Mr. Blythe wanted to meet the Cabinet Secretary to see whether he could help the Prime Minister. And the implication of that is whether he could help him financially. Yeah, he definitely. So, although you didn't offer direct financial advice to the Prime Minister, the point you were making earlier on, you did inform the Prime Minister before you met the Cabinet Secretary, that there was someone who had approached you, yes. who was a member of his family, uh, uh, who wanted to help him financially. <coughs> so, in effect, without giving financial advice, you had discussed his finances, or rather the fact that somebody wanted to help him with his finances with the Prime Minister. That's correct, isn't it? Correct. Right. Uh, Richard, let, do we now know as a result of this hearing, is there an agreed set of events? Now, we can talk about motivations and other things, to, but are you any clearer as a result of uh, this morning what the pattern of events were? Yes, well, we have a, a chronology which uh, Richard Sharp spelled out very clearly to the committee. In uh, September 2020, he was working 
to support Rishi Sunak, who was then Chancellor of the Exchequer. They'd worked together previously at Goldman Sachs. And Rishi Sunak brought uh, Richard Sharp into number 11 Downing Street to try to help sort through the financial crisis caused by the then raging pandemic. So in September 2020, uh, Sharp got a call from an old friend of his who's a multimillionaire called Sam Blythe, who's a distant cousin of Boris Johnson, but also a Canadian citizen. And uh, Mr Blythe said to uh, Mr Sharp that he was really concerned at reports he was reading in the press that uh, Boris Johnson was in some financial difficulty. That conversation took place in September. In October 2020, it was reported in the press that Boris Johnson's preferred candidate to be the next chairman of the BBC, an old mate of his called Charles Moore, had decided to pull out of the race. Now, Richard Sharp by that time had been working, he says, with some people in the film industry, media people, because he was trying to help find ways of financing the British film industry at a time that the pandemic had knocked it sideways. So he knew lots of people in the uh, media business and one of his friends apparently said to him, why don't you think of applying Mr Sharp? And Mr Sharp did think of applying to be chairman of the BBC. So he popped next door from number 11 into number 10 and told Boris Johnson that he was thinking of applying to be chairman of the BBC. And he also said to Boris Johnson, by the way, I had a call last month from your old mate. He's a distant cousin of yours, Sam Blythe, who wants to help you out if you're in some difficulty. And I've told him he'll have to do that by talking first to the Cabinet Office. So next month in November, he gets another call from Mr Blythe saying, you remember you told me I should go through the Cabinet Office if I want to help out the Prime Minister? Well, I'd like to do that now. Could you do that for me? And instead of saying, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that because I've just applied to run the BBC, Sharp does indeed go and see the Cabinet Secretary and tells him about Mr Blythe's offer to help out the Prime Minister. And while he's there, he reminds the Cabinet Secretary, as if he needed to, that his application to be chairman of the BBC is now in the process of going through the the selection process. And Mr Sharp says he satisfies himself that by agreeing with the Cabinet Secretary at that meeting that he would have no further involvement whatever in any discussions between Mr Blythe and Mr Johnson, that he had no conflict of interest that he should have declared either to the Selection Committee or to the DCMS Select Committee when they interviewed him. Now, at the end of an hour and, what, 45 minutes of going backwards and forwards and towards the end talking about other issues we'll come on to, like local radio and the World Service, the chair of the committee, Damien Green, tried to sum up, and this is, uh, this is how the final exchanges between him and the BBC chairman went. So you would do it all the same again? Well, obviously I've had a lot of time to consider in the last few weeks um, my participation in this, in seeking to ensure that... Uh, all the rules were followed, um, and I, w- I, w- I wish we weren't where we were, where we are now. So you wouldn't have done. Well, th- th- I, I think I will continue to consider uh, the actions I took. Uh, what I do know is I acted in good faith to ensure that the rules are followed, and in that sense, I have no regret for that. Um, I, I clearly underestimated um, the way things uh, could be seen particularly in light of when they were described with facts that weren't true, 
So, for example, I took no, I took no part in um, any financing. I took no part in arranging the financing. I wasn't party to it. I simply put Mr. Blythe together with Mr. Case to ensure due process was followed. And uh, to that extent, I don't regret the fact that I informed Mr. Case that due process should be followed. Um, but clearly, I could have said to him, as I think uh, Mr. Brennan said, find your own way to Mr. Case. Do you wish you'd done that now? Well, I, I think you can, you can form your own judgment on that. So, Richard, anybody expecting the chairman to apologise or to say that his conduct was wrong would have been disappointed, wouldn't they? Yes, he said he'd been thinking uh, deeply about it and he stressed throughout his, uh, his session before the Select Committee that he was embarrassed and saddened that the BBC had been caused concern by these events over recent weeks. But he insisted constantly that his concern throughout was to ensure there was due process because he says he knew that there are rules about foreign citizens giving financial help to British politicians. So he wasn't helping Johnson get a loan guarantee and he wasn't currying favour with Johnson. He just wanted to make sure that due process was followed so that everything was above board. But he didn't think that his involvement might even lead anyone to suspect even that he'd had an ulterior motive in getting involved. And when Kevin Brennan MP, Labour MP, asked, did you consider saying sorry? I can't help because I've just applied to be chairman of the BBC. Sharp's answer was, clearly I could have said no, but I felt I could help ensure due process was followed. Now, are we dealing here, do you think, with a clash of cultures, a sort of business culture, which Richard Sharp belongs to, of a certain type, and a public service culture which the committee expects people to understand and follow. And therefore we're dealing with Richard Sharp being sort of genuinely puzzled that he could be in this mess, and the committee genuinely puzzled that he couldn't see he would get into this mess. Look, what emerges here is just how rotten the entire system for appointing the chair of the National Broadcaster is. First, Johnson lets it be known that he intends to appoint his mate, Charles Moore, but then Moore pulls out. Then Sharp, who's another old mate, happens to be working in the office next door in Downing Street, pops in to see Johnson, as you do, to say that he wants to apply for the job. Then Sharp tells Johnson he's recently had a call from Sam Blythe saying he'd like to help Johnson out of his financial difficulties. Then Sharp applies to be BBC chairman... Then Sharp gets another call from Sam Blythe saying, you remember you offered to, uh, told me to go through the Cabinet Office? Well, please help me do that. And Sharp kids himself that by having no further involvement after putting the Cabinet Secretary on the job, he has no conflict of interest. That was clearly an unsustainable position. But what is at fault is not just the selection of the BBC chairman and not just Boris Johnson's cronyism, it is the whole public appointment system. And if we learn anything from this mess, it has to be that the appointment of people who will lead public bodies in this country has to be taken away from ministers and the prime minister. There has to be an independent process to appoint the people who run those parts of the state which are supposed to be independent of political direction. 
People should run organisations, state organisations, in a way which they run most effectively and efficiently, not run by or for or with the involvement of politicians. In the short term, the question will be, has he done enough to survive? Now, if there's no further information comes out, it looked to me that he's unlikely to resign. Presumably... The only thing the Select Committee could do, if they could agree, and of course the Conservatives and Labour's another on it, would be to pass some sort of vote of no confidence. Again, I would think that is unlikely. We're most probably going to get the Select Committee saying at the strongest that it believes that Mr Sharp should have declared the interest. Do you think he can survive? I don't think the Select Committee's judgment will be uh, significant in this. First of all, there's a BBC investigation by the BBC's own nominations committee into whether Sharp had a conflict of interest when he joined the BBC and since he joined the BBC. I think it's highly unlikely that that will find against Sharp. However, there is also an investigation by a leading KC, a leading lawyer, acting for the Commissioner of Public Appointments to see whether due process was followed during this appointment. That will be the crucial determinant of whether he can survive or not. However, after the performance today, I think within the BBC there will be very, very considerable disquiet among the staff and among many licence fee payers, and I think they'll be right to be disquieted, and I think it may well be that Sharp feels the right thing to do is to step down in the fullness of time. Well, in the course of almost two hours of interview or cross-examination or however you put it, a number of other issues were raised about the BBC and I wonder how much you thought we learnt about what's going on, actually, about the decision-making. I mean, the chairman talked about a budget crisis they faced. He was very clear to point out that it seemed so very, very difficult decisions. He defended, well, he didn't so much defend the licence fee as say it was imperfect, but he had no preferred option to replace it. On local radio, he constantly said he supported effective localism, but, you know, we have to make these changes. Although in the case of Radio Foil, I think they're backtracking quickly as they've woken up to the fact that certainly a particular section of Northern Ireland would be deeply disappointed if BBC Belfast survives and... Radio Foil doesn't. And then he was also finally tasked about the payment of quite a... creating Not creating jobs, but paying quite a lot of money to experienced PR people while he's making cuts in local radio. He also revealed one thing which was quite fascinating to me. He said he'd had a conversation with the Culture Secretary spelling out a lot of the difficult decisions coming up. He hasn't had that conversation with the public or the licence fee. So these cuts are being discussed... Very significant ones, the World Service we know about, local radio. But they're not being discussed more widely. Do you think that the chairman, or whoever becomes a chairman now, should be far more open with the British people and saying, look, we're in this financial situation, we can do this, we can do that, we can save money in this way, but these are the choices that we've got to make to make cuts. What do you think? Because at the moment, there isn't that wide a discussion, and all that happens is... We are told one day the BBC is taking this decision and there might be some sort of consultation, but actually it's virtually written in stone. Well, I think the BBC will undertake widespread consultation with licence fee payers and with all interests, but it does that 
on, frankly, a cyclical basis linked with uh, the charter review process. Now, the, this charter runs out in 2027, so you would expect in 2025 the BBC will begin a major body of work consulting everybody, including all of us who pay our licence fees, about what we think the, the BBC's future should be. The fact that the chairman is having probably quite frequent conversations with the Secretary of State, that's not improper, it's perfectly proper, and every chairman, I think, of the BBC has had fairly regular meetings with the responsible Secretary of State, and it's perfectly proper that the Secretary of State should want to keep herself or himself involved and aware of issues facing the BBC. I think we should take some pleasure from the fact that uh, Sharp was pretty clear today that he thinks the BBC's finances are inadequate, although he's by no means a supporter of the licence fee. He did, in a sense, challenge the government to come up with a system which would provide adequate funding and in a way which was less unfair than the licence fee is currently seen to be, though he didn't himself have a preferred option. And I think he was clearly passionate and serious about the need to maintain the World Service and to maintain what he called localism, but he recognised, although the Tory MP who was questioning him didn't want to recognise it himself, that there is a real challenge in the best way to reach local audiences, and it doesn't necessarily follow that the best way to do that is through continuance of 24-hour-day local radio stations all over the country when more and more people, even of my age and your age, Roger, are using online services rather than uh, listening to broadcast services. Let's pick up that World Service point because I thought it was really interesting because, of course, because the day before this story broke, he'd been actually talking to Parliament about the, the concerns about the World Service and then the story broke and that overwhelmed it. And he went back to talk about the World Service cuts and he said something along the lines of, you know, it's really difficult or increasingly difficult to justify to domestic licence fee payers paying, as it were, what they are for the, world, for the world service at the moment, which, of course, they don't largely use. And he's clear of the view now that we've got to have separate funding again for the world service. So in the short term, he might get some response, but there's a, and Parliament might be more responsive to that. But isn't there a problem now within the BBC that the new services in the world service and the domestic service are so integrated now it is quite difficult to say this money must only go to the World Service because they aren't separate entities anymore. There's no right solution to this problem. If you uh, remember, right from its uh, formation, the World Service was financed directly by the taxpayer, by government, by the Foreign Office, right up until 2016. And the BBC was often accused by enemies of Britain, by foreign states, uh, the World Service being a mouthpiece of government because it was paid for by government, even though it was editorially controlled by the BBC. There were thought to be lots of advantages in 2016 in uh, giving the BBC responsibility for paying for the World Service from the licence fee. However, now the dramatic cut in the real value of the licence fee because it's uh, simply not risen for years almost beyond number now has had a disproportionate effect on the World Service because as you suggest Roger licence fee payers 
are loath to see a larger proportion of their licence fee go to finance a service that most of them never hear, despite the fact that we all, as Brits, get a considerable benefit from the good that the World Service brings to Britain's reputation around the world. There is no clear solution. It probably is not for government to directly fund the World Service anymore. And frankly, I doubt if any future government would want to take it back, having got rid of it. They'll want to lumber the BBC with the problem of managing the World Service's finances. The question is, where does the BBC get sufficient money from, if not solely from the licence fee, to manage the totality of its journalism, which is, as you say, more and more integrated, to the benefit, I must say, of domestic audiences. Uh, Hearing some of the formerly World Service journalists placed around the world broadcasting now regularly on the domestic services is a thrill and a real insight for British audiences. Although there's a problem with combining the news channels into one and a real concern that smaller local stories will, you know, get pushed out by larger ones. But I mean... I'll give you a contrary view. Let me give you a contrary view, Roger. Ah, please do. Let me. I know that it won't be popular to say this, certainly not popular among my old colleagues at the BBC, but... If we had a combined service which gives us, at the press of a button 24 hours a day, access to a really good service of world news in the UK, that would be a fantastic bonus. Because, frankly, as a former BBC News boss myself, I'm saddened that I have to watch Channel 4 News every night of the week or six nights a week in order to feel that I'm getting a serious lengthy, detailed account of parts of the world which once I would have heard about regularly through the BBC's domestic news services, but I don't anymore. And if you asked me to choose between a very repetitious home news, News 24 service, which tells me over and over and over again some largely inconsequential stories about the UK at the expense of not telling me what's happening in the rest of the world except when there's an earthquake, or a world service television service available to me in Britain which informs me better about the world, I know which one one I would go for. The number of Christmas cards which Richard Eyre is going to receive next Christmas has suddenly dropped quite dramatically. Uh, Finally, Richard, I know it's an unfair question, but let me ask you, three months' time... No. No, be fair. Six months' time. Will the BBC chairman, Richard Sharp, still be in this job? No, he won't. And we'll have Richard Eyre back in six months to review what actually happened. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thanks, Roger. And that's it for this week. Please do support our journalism. It's only pound ninety-nine a month, just about a very small cup of coffee. And you can do this easily using the link on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform. You can get in touch with interview ideas and questions on Twitter by using at BeebRoger or on Mastodon using at RogerBolton at MastodonApp.uk or you can send us an email on roger at rogerboltonsbeebwatch.com This podcast was presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it was produced by Kate Dixon. The sound was by Clifton Bank Studios, and special thanks to Quingenti. It was a good egg production. Until next week, goodbye.